Hey, it's Pastor Mike. Before we get to today's episode, I want you to know that we at Time of Grace have a ton of resources to help you in your walk of faith. From our TV program, to daily devotions, to our Grace Talks video devotions, to podcasts, to our blog, to books, to other books, till still more books, uh, whatever you're looking for and however you best learn, you can stay rooted in Jesus by taking time out for God's word every day. If you're interested, just go to timeofgrace.org to sign up for our daily email. Now, on to today's episode. What exactly do angels do? Recently, someone asked me one of the tougher questions that I've gotten as a pastor in a very long time. The first part of the question actually wasn't super difficult. They asked, what, what did angels do in the Bible? It was the second half of the question that kind of got me. And what do angels do for us today? I think I can do well with the first half. What did angels do in the Bible? Uh, I would respond this way. They said stuff and they did stuff. <laughs> or maybe I, I could expand on that. They said powerful stuff and they did powerful stuff. Uh, do you remember the Christmas story? God sends the angel Gabriel to um, Zechariah. Oh, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. He, he says powerful stuff. The plan of salvation is unfolding. And then Gabriel zooms or zips or flies or teleports. I don't know how he does. <laughs> how he does it. He goes up to Nazareth and he appears to Mary and he says, don't be afraid. And then the, the hosts of angels in Luke chapter 2, they appear to the shepherds with good news of great joy. A savior has been born. So often, and actually the, the name angel in Greek is connected to the word messenger. Right, so they brought a message. They said powerful things, especially about the salvation plan of God. That's what angels did in the Bible. And they didn't just speak. Sometimes they did powerful things. Uh, best example for me, uh, do you remember in the Old Testament, there is a king in Jerusalem named Hezekiah? And the world superpower at the time, the Assyrian army had marched, surrounded the city, like it was over, the siege was starting, they're mocking uh, the people of Jerusalem. Hezekiah can't save you. Until, until God sent an angel. Not all the angels. Not an equal number of angels to the number of Assyrian soldiers. He sent one angel versus, I think, 100,000 plus Assyrian soldiers. And the angel wins. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, if you don't love angels, like, that's your story. One angel takes on an entire, well-trained, undefeatable army. So, um, the question, what did angels do in the Bible? They said powerful things and they did powerful things. So, what about today? Uh, it's a little bit tougher to figure out because I, I don't know about you, but I've never seen an angel. An angel never appeared to me and said, Mike, son of Tom, <laughs> do not be afraid. I bring good news. Listen up. And I've never like seen an angel fight an army for me or part the seas for me. So what do angels do anything? What, what exactly do they do for God's people? Well, there's a little hint uh, in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, in context, the author is talking about how Jesus is even better than angels. But he ends the chapter in verse 14 with these really interesting words. 
are not all angels ministering spirits who are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Let me read that again. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So who are those who inherit salvation? Uh, Christians. People who are saved by the blood of Christ. And apparently angels, all the angels are sent to serve people like me and like all of you who believe in Jesus. They're called ministering spirits. We can't see them. They're spirits. They're invisible, but they minister somehow to us. And that, honestly, that's a question um, that I still have. How, How exactly do they serve us? How do angels minister to us? Is it like those like weird, coincidental, inexplicable moments where, you know, it shouldn't have happened, but then it did? You're late for a meeting, there's nowhere to park, and then somehow there's an open parking spot. Did an angel like rearrange the, the cars? Were you supposed to slide off the road during that bad ice storm, but then an angel was sent to serve you and extend your life so that you could spread the name of Jesus? And, and the answer is maybe. Angels do powerful things. (laughs) So how exactly do angels serve us? Um, Here's my best biblical answer. I know that they do, but I don't know exactly how. Which is why I can't wait to see the angels in heaven. When I make it to heaven and see the the king of the angel armies, Jesus, I I wonder if he'll send some angels to speak powerful words to us to share the story of how they served us, ministered to us, saved us, protected us. I wonder if part of the worship in heaven will be praising Jesus for all the angels that he sent to bless us in ways we couldn't see because they're spiritual beings. So, I would love to give you details. I can't. (laughs) But I do know this, angels are real. Angels help God's people. And one day we will praise Jesus for the angels he sent in our lives. Recently, our church had a question and answer Sunday, and someone asked me a question that feels relevant to all of us. The question was this, is it bad to be friends with people who don't believe in God? I did think about that one for a little bit. When I was a kid uh, growing up in the church, my pastor used to always say this one phrase time and time and time again. He would say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me the people you're running with, the people that you do life with, and I can make a a pretty good prediction like what direction your life is going to take. Have you noticed that to be true? I think sometimes uh, the the dumbest things I've done in my life haven't been by myself, but been with other people who said, do it, do it. (laughs) And I think of some of the most amazing things I've ever done haven't been just me by myself, but with amazing people who inspired me or led me or encouraged me. So I, I love this question. If, if you're a Christian, like I'm a Christian, if we want to glorify God with our whole life, then this is pretty relevant. Should we do life with, should we be friends with, should we invest tons of time into people who don't share our beliefs or our values? Well, today, I don't just want to give you my opinion on that question. I want to share a few thoughts from this book, from the Bible. Now, in 1 Corinthians 
Uh, the Apostle Paul was writing to a church that was dealing with all kinds of, of problems, some of which they received from their culture, their, the friends around them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul uh, addressed this issue. He said this, Do not be misled. Right? Misled, like led, led astray. Do not be misled. And, and then he quotes um, from the Old Testament. He says, Bad company corrupts good character. Right? How does a Christian often end up misled? Doing things they shouldn't. Saying words they shouldn't. Making choices that they shouldn't. Well, the Apostle Paul says, think about this. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. He, he goes on to say, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. You know, so in one sense, the Apostle Paul is picking up on a teaching that came up a ton in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Some people live a wise life and some people don't. Uh, there's one proverb that says, a companion of fools suffers harm. So just like your mama was concerned, the kind of people that you became friends with in school, our Heavenly Father is concerned too. He, he says, be careful. Bad company can corrupt good character. Bad examples can lead even a good Christian astray. So you have to ask yourself serious questions like, are, are my friends who don't share my beliefs in Jesus, my passion for Jesus, are they influencing me? Are they affecting me in a negative spiritual way? Right? So, so in one sense, the Bible would say, uh, should you be friends? Well, maybe not. But you know what I love about the Bible is this beautiful tension that it so often holds. Because there's passages like the ones that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 5. Do you remember these famous words? He said, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Right? Let, let your light, the light of God, the light of your faith, the light that you get from Jesus, let it shine before others, so that they can see the good things you do and glorify God in heaven. Or think of Jesus saying, go into the world and preach the good news of the gospel to all creation. And you probably figured out the best way to preach the gospel is with people who know you, who maybe like you, who, who trust you, who, who you've done life with. And so, you know, the Bible has this big push too. Like, yeah, love the world. Sure, they don't believe in Jesus yet, but God loves the world. Go love them. Jesus served people who didn't believe in him just yet, so go, go serve people who don't believe in him just yet. You know, everyone is nice to their own people, but Jesus calls us to be nice and kind and loving to all people. Even love your enemies, he said. And so the Bible pushes us almost to this extreme of showing God's unconditional love to people who are so far from the things that we believe and the values by which we behave. But if we let our light shine before them, maybe they're going to see our good deeds. Maybe they're going to notice our faith. Maybe it's going to draw them to Jesus and they, like us, will glorify your Father in heaven. So, back to the question. Should you be friends with someone who doesn't believe in God? The Bible's answer is, well, <laughs> it takes a lot of wisdom. You might have to ask yourself if someone's a, a bad influence that's leading you astray. You might have to be careful and end that friendship. And maybe with someone else, you can be the influencer of them, showing them the good deeds of God and the amazing Savior that we have. Should you be friends? Think deeply. 
Think biblically. That's what the Bible says. Quote, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. Unquote. Recently at our church's question and answer Sunday, someone sent me that exact passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. And the question was, what? <laughs> How are we supposed to understand that? They asked me, women can't speak? Must be silence? There's a later passage about asking your husband when you're at home, but what if you're single? What, what is up <laughs> with 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35? Good question. Especially if you're a woman watching, that is a really good question. If you're a woman who respects the Bible and loves Jesus and wants to follow everything that God says, what, what, is this, what does this mean for you? Well, this is a huge topic when we talk about what men and women share and what's different in the family of God. Actually, if you track down on some of our social media channels, I have a, a whole series, I think it's four total weeks called God and Gender, where I try to break this down in depth. Because this matters so much, there's a, a lot of controversy, a lot of disagreement, and I just want to give you some really good scriptural, biblical basis. <laughs> Which makes me question if I should give you just a short answer about this specific passage. Right? Because I, I don't know what you think about men and women, what you know about Genesis 2 or Ephesians 5 or 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Peter 3 or 1 Corinthians 11 or you know, the Old Testament church system or Jesus picking apostles. Like, um, th There's a lot of context here and it's, my answer to this question is going to make sense without that wider biblical context. So if, if you could show me a little bit of grace, I do want to give a direct answer to this question without a, a two-hour video. So what does this mean? Here in context is what I think it means. I think it means that there are some situations in the church that God has reserved for men to speak. So in the context of this chapter, uh, in my Bible, it's called good order in worship. Uh, we're talking about a, a certain situation where a woman would get up and, and speak with authority to the rest of the church. And it's in that context that Paul says, quote, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Right, so the law, the, the law of God, the scriptures, has this unique relationship. It's not inferiority. It's not a lack of intelligence or gifting. But there, there is this distinction in both the Old and New Testament. That's what the, the series is a little bit about, God and gender, where God calls men, I'm just going to say in this context, to speak with authority in the church. A good proof passage for my understanding of this comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, where Paul said, I don't permit a woman to teach, that is to speak with authority over a man. So sounds pretty similar to what's happening here. So I don't believe that Paul in this context is saying that once a woman enters a church building, she can't talk. 
or sing or pray or, or share her faith. There are so many examples throughout the Bible where both men and women did that exact thing. But are there certain situations when we're getting up to, to preach with authority, um, are there situations where God makes a distinction? And I believe the biblical answer is yeah, yes, there is. This passage is one of the you know, six to ten places in the New Testament that do that exact thing. They make a distinction from a God of love who cares about sons and daughters and God wants us to honor that. Now, I said this wasn't going to be a two-hour video. I know there are so many reactions to that. There's, uh, there's skepticism, there's wounds, there, there's people who take this and they're very demeaning and derogatory towards women. I don't know if you've had any of those experiences. There's, well, this is convenient for me, right, as a man, as a pastor, to quote stuff like this. So I, I really hope if uh, this is controversial for you, you can check out that whole sermon series. I want to go deep so both brothers and sisters in the faith are working together, the church just as God intends, trusting his word, imitating Jesus. Um, this word comes from God and that God is good. And he challenges us sometimes in certain cultures. He really, really challenges us. But let's trust that if God wrote it, um, we don't need to, to reject it. We can accept it as a good word from a good God. Hope that answer helps as you try to understand men and women within the church. And may God bless you as you do. What do you do if your husband doesn't want to be the head of your household? Uh, recently, a uh, person asked me that in our church's question and answer Sunday. Uh, and it just it makes me sad just thinking of the situation. Because it's, it's super common and I'm not sure if you've been there before. So often, uh, Christian women in the church, they read what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, that the husband is the head of the family, just like Jesus. He's given this amazing calling to love like Jesus, to lead like Jesus, to be selfless but strong, tough, and tender, just like Jesus. And I know so many Christian women who would love that. I mean, they would love to just have a man who is like Jesus. Um, now, obviously, every, every man, every husband is going to fall way short of that. But there are some who don't even want to. And I think that's where this question comes from. What are you supposed to do as a Christian wife if your husband doesn't want to be the head of the household? Well, my biblical answer to that is going to depend on whether he is a Christian who is neglecting his duty or if he is a non-Christian who just has no concept of that duty. Well, let me try to answer both really quickly. If your husband claims to be a Christian, but he just like doesn't want to be the head of the household, I would, I would start just having a, a humble heart-to-heart -heart conversation with an open Bible. I would open up to, um, let's say, Ephesians chapter 5, read verses 22 through 33, which lays out wives and husbands, how we work together in this relationship called marriage. Um, like, put the, the word right in front of him to see uh, if it's not just you, you know, trying to change him, but it's, it's God calling him to what God wants him to be. And if he's a true follower of Jesus, he, he's going to respect the words of Jesus. He's going to respect the word of God. It might take him a little bit. He might be defensive. He might be scared. 
<laughs> to be like Jesus in a marriage is a, a pretty intimidating calling, to be honest. But maybe that's that's where you can start. Like, don't don't push it. You know, there's these amazing husbands you see on social media. They're doing all these things and reading the Bible to the kids. Like, don't don't arm twist him or, or shame him. Like, help him. Remember in the beginning that the first wife Eve was a helper um, to her husband Adam. Like, this might be a great calling for you. You're going to help your husband to see his calling, to step up to it, to embrace it. You're going to encourage him with your words. Right? So that might be a great place to go. But let's think of a worst case scenario. What what if he still doesn't want to? What if he doesn't want to talk with you? What if he gets so defensive, he just like shuts the Bible before he, he thinks about it or reads it or considers it? Now, if he's still calling himself a Christian, that's a time, I think, when you bring in another Christian man. Like, is there a guy who passionately follows God that he knows and respects? You normally wouldn't bring a third party into your marriage, but you're at this deadlock. You're right, because your husband is neglecting the word, and we're going to need to bring in someone else. A trusted friend, a a brother in Christ, uh, maybe a respected leader at your church. Right, just... We're going to take the conversation up just one level and we're going to, we're going to plead with him to say, hey, like, you're sinning, <laughs> right? Jesus did not just like, you know, slowly <laughs> fade out of the picture, right? He stepped up to his calling and he loves you. He's going to help you. He forgives you for what happened, but this is your calling. Will, will you embrace it? All right, so it, it, it's going to be a little bit tense. But I hope and pray that this is worth it. Now, the fact is that we live today in uh, a culture that does not call men to do hard things. And this is no doubt a hard thing. I, I think of my own family. Like to have the responsibility of leading them spiritually. I've, I'm blessed with a lot of training in the Bible, but that's still, that's hard. <laughs> like juggling all of that, helping my family get closer to God's, It's very difficult. Our culture isn't helping husbands to do that. And so I'm praying that whether it's through you or a brother in the faith or a pastor from your church, that you can help your husband become the man that Jesus wants him to be. That he can become a Christian husband who is the head of the household, not just on paper, but in practice, as he leads, as he sacrifices, and as he loves. I hope that helps. I hope your husband changes. I hope your family becomes everything that God always wanted it to be. Recently, one of my friends asked me a question that I bet you've asked too. The question was this, how do we push through during changing and uncertain times? Uh, In my friend's case, some things had changed with his physical health. Um, some things that we actually loved doing had kind of changed in our community and we we lost something we really loved. He asked this question in the midst of the pandemic where where everything is uncertain, from work stuff to health stuff to the economy. You know, and after a while that stuff weighs on you and and that question becomes so relevant. How do we how do we move forward? How do we keep going? How do we not lose heart and lose hope? Um, I bet even if your situation is different than my friend, you can relate to that. And so much is uncertain, isn't it? Like things can change 
so fast. You, you can be dating someone and then, um, I don't know, it, it can fall apart really quickly. You can be married to someone and one day they can say, I'm, I'm out. You can be excited about starting a family, but a, a conception is uncertain. A, a miscarriage could happen. There's people who struggle with fertility all the time. Right? There's, there's accidents, there's snowstorms, there's job loss, there's cancer, there's anxiety, there's depression, there's, there's death, there's grief. H how, in a world like this, where anything can change just like that, do you keep moving forward without losing heart and with a heart full of hope? Well, there is a perfect, perfect, perfect Bible passage to answer that question. The Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians actually gives a list of all the things that he had been through in his life. So if you would read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul lists all of the sufferings that he had endured. Let me give you just a little taste. He says, I've been in prison, been flogged, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. <laughs> well, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. And he's not done. I've been constantly on the move, he says. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled, gone without sleep, known hunger, thirst, gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who's weak and I do not feel weak? Who's led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? In other words, Paul gets it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're having a hard time through the pandemic. He's like, I'm, they stoned me. They beat me with rods. I've been flogged, left for dead, shipwrecked, hunted, persecuted. My life is so uncertain. I've experienced so many changes. So, so how did Paul get through it? There's a beautiful verse just a couple pages earlier. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said this. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Like I, I love that logic. Paul says, honestly, if I would fix my eyes on the things of this world, on my health, on my job, on the headlines, on my friendships, I, I would lose heart so fast. I would be so broken over what I've lost or what I could lose. I'd be terrified that the best things in my life might disappear. But that's not what Paul did. Did you catch what he did? We don't lose heart because we fix our eyes not on what is seen and temporary, but what is unseen and eternal. So here's how I would summarize that. If you want to learn how to move forward through hard times, um, let me give you two words. 
expectation and anticipation. Right? Expectation means that you expect that everything in this life is temporary. Right? The things that you can see, they're really good things. Family, friends, your health, sports, money, good job. That's all good things, but you just have to expect, hey, um, this is good, but it's not God. It's not going to last forever. You know, eventually my ACL is going to go or my brain's going to forget. I'm going to start hunching. <laughs> I'm going to start losing muscle mass. Like, uh, I just expect in this world that's going to happen to my body. I expect that the economy is uncertain. I expect that people come into your life and then they leave. I, I expect that people we love die way before their time. I, I expect it. I'm not... I'm going to be sad, but I'm not going to be shocked because what I see is temporary. And if you have good expectations of earthly things, the loss of them might sadden you, but it won't crush you. So expect, like Paul expected. And number two, anticipation. You could catch that in Paul's writings. Like he had a hard life. <laughs> he had been through a lot, but he was fixing his eyes on what was eternal. On this incredible glory that would make all of his suffering seem so small. Uh, in another verse, uh, Romans chapter 8, maybe one of the best chapters on suffering, Paul said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And Paul knew that heaven would be so insanely good. Just being with God, gathered around his throne, seeing his loving face, enjoying his forgiveness would be so, so good and nothing in this world could take that away. How do you push forward through uncertain times? This is the unique Christian hope that allows us not to lose heart. We know where we're going. We know how amazing it's going to be. We know that this world might fall apart in a thousand ways, but nothing can change or touch or take away the treasure that we have because of Jesus, eternal life in the presence of God. So expect temporary things to be temporary. Anticipate the glory of the eternal life that you have through Jesus. That's how you push through. That's how Paul did it. And that's how you can too.